0: Discover more resources and continue the conversation at Apologetics.org. And now, your host, the Research
1: Professor of Bible and Theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to The Universe Next Door. This is Nick Shawna, and we are going to continue the second part of the interview with Dr. Gary Habermas that Mike Sherrard and I had done. Uh, and Dr. Habermas is probably the world's leading expert on the resurrection I say probably because I want to be generous to the other experts, um, but... Uh, Go back and check out part one if you hadn't listened yet. It was on doubt, and Dr. Gary had given us some very helpful advice on how to deal with doubt, both in ourselves and in conversation with others. And in the second part of the interview, we're going to get into the evidence for the resurrection and how that practically plays out in a conversation. So go ahead and please share this podcast, The Universe Next Door, with a friend or with a family member. Uh, We are on Apple, we're on Spotify, CastBox, pretty much anything that you can use to listen to podcasts we're on. So go ahead and share it. It only takes a second, and we hope you enjoy the second part of this interview with Dr. Gary Habermas, uh, as much as we did. I will just register mm-hmm. well, that. Well, Dr. Gary, let me ask you this. Um, in addition to to doubt, and just so you know, we're in a defending the resurrection series right now, and doubt is like that's a huge part of the reason we're doing this. So I'm really glad that uh, we got to cover this. But when we talk about doubt. Let's say you have a PhD, uh, Mike, you're the president of a ministry, I'm a pastor, we've all put hours and hours and hours into studying. What do you say to the average Christian listener who they want to go and defend the truth of the resurrection, they want to share the gospel and see their friends saved, but, but what do you think is like the biggest challenge they might face in trying to do that, not having all of the education yet, not like having maybe just started, let's say, a few years or, or even a few months into their Christian walk?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I know a bunch of people who are really good and don't have any degrees. So you can it's not degrees, uh, and I know you're not saying that necessarily, but uh, a lot of people do it on their own, and they're very, very good at it. But the kind that write me, that really bother me, <laughs> they get on your nerves. They're often emotional doubters, but here's what they're doing when they write to you. I've been reading Rudolf Boltzmann lately. I've been spending a lot of time reading this atheist or that atheist, and I think I'm doing pretty well, but there's eight areas where he's really getting me off my game. Can you help me with these eight? And then he tells me how much he's accomplished, and he's done two, and he's questioning eight. So I have to write to him, and I'm going to say, it's irrespective of whether they have a degree or not, but I have to say to them, look, dude, learn not to read people that bother you. If they bother you and you can't handle the objection on your own, I'm not saying don't go to anybody else. But if you can you can answer two questions and you can't answer eight, don't read them until you got your emotions under control. Because all it's going to be is a roller coaster ride for you. I'm just telling you. All right, all right, I'll do that. They write back three weeks later. Hey, can you answer these three more questions? I'm still reading this other atheist, and I'll say, stop it. Just just stop it. Because don't don't study guys you can't handle, and don't talk to people you can't handle. You're not helping the cause of Christ. you'll come off looking like you don't know what you're talking about, and then they'll tell that story and maybe use your name. You know if you're a local pastor, I mean you know this this hurts ministry. so um people like to d- jump in and you know what they'll tell me? This tells you a little bit of I'm not saying I'm not a psychologist, so I'm not going to say obsessive compulsive disorder, but it's a little bit of an obsessive- compulsive personality type not disorder, but what they say to me just makes me laugh, but they'll say, i say, why are you reading him? Oh, I just want to get the best of the objections so I can answer the best. Well, you can't even answer the, I'm saying to myself, you can't even answer the easiest ones. So leave this guy alone until you can handle it. You got to work yeah, up. Yeah. You can't start on this guy.
1: Yeah.
2: So they, they jump in. They're just all kinds of mistakes people make and, and then what the Christians, you guys started with this, what the Christians tell you is so misleading. Oftentimes they'll say, well, don't doubt anymore. Just stop and practice mm-hmm. faith. Okay, that sounds wonderful. But I'll tell you what, it's not going to work with me. <laughs> and, and, the, and the key women in my life, and I mean this with all my heart, The key five women in my life, and then, of course, I've got daughters, too, who are doing really, really well with the Lord. Every one of these women, they'll say, don't get me wrong, I'm happy for the evidence. I listen to the speaker that comes in and talks about creation, talks about what's wrong with uh, genocide, what's, what's, uh, how do we know Jesus is the Son of God, resurrection. I love them, but I don't need them. And I said to my wife, who's one of them, uh, Mike already mentioned my wife, uh, my wife and my four children died in 1995 of stomach cancer, but I'm remarried. And and, she, and both the wives would have said this. I'd say, well, if somebody asked you a question you couldn't answer, I mean, it tore you up, would you? Would it bother your faith? And without, uh, they just go, no, not at all. I'm secure. I'm not worried. I'm not going to heaven. And I think, and I know what you guys are probably thinking. I think to myself, "Oh, if I could have, if I could be like that, and just have that kind of faith, no matter what." But that's not my psychology. So, and it takes all types. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not criticizing that. Mm -hmm. I think
1: that kind of, I think that mentality is fantastic. Sure. Yeah. Right. Well, with that in mind, I mean, you have written. I'm trying to phrase this question in the most careful and helpful way i can you've written over 40 when you books, don't i'll you, make fun of you for no that's it, so fine don't worry about or maybe just shut me off and then nobody can hear <laughs> me <laughs> um so i mean you've written so much on the resurrection you're coming out with a new book that's like a phone book it's almost like as big as some of the books i've written uh and so i'm just kidding i haven't written any books but but what do you let's say you have like 20 or 30 minutes with somebody you must have a few evidences that are like Dr. Gary Habermas's favorite go to evidences. What might those be? And we're doing the resurrection, right? On the resurrection specifically, sure. I mean, they're asking me
2: about the resurrection. Yes. Right, right. Yeah. I would give my minimal facts argument, and I can give it, I can, yeah, I can state the argument in one minute. Now, it's going to take time for people to unpack it with me and ask Mm. questions, but it's not hard to state the argument. In fact, somebody just said in print the other day, and I didn't take this badly, they said the minimal facts argument is a very simple argument. They meant not simplistic, but simple because you can get through it very easily. And here Mm. it is. I will take facts which critical scholars take. I will treat the New Testament the way critical scholars do it. I will use data that they will allow, and not use data that they don't allow. And these could be atheist, agnostic, um, avowed non non-Christian authors. Often they're New Testament scholars, and but they're not Christians. And I will take their facts, and I will argue for. Lately, it's been a half dozen facts. I go from anywhere from you know three to seven over the over. 40 years. And I, and I changed that. You go, why do you change the facts? Well, not because anything's being disproven, because they're not all required in certain circumstances. Or somebody wants to ask about one or two of them. But I, right now, I would use six facts. And I would say these six are established, and you're virtually not going to find a single scholar, no matter how liberal. They only have to be a scholar. They go, why do you say that? I don't mean you have to have degrees, I, they've got to know the territory. Mm. I prefer them to have terminal degrees in the New Testament or something related. But you can't be a guy who lives in his parents' basement. I'm just giving a caricature <laughs> of what you're hearing in the news today. A guy who doesn't leave the house. He's pretty old now. <laughs> he doesn't leave. He's never studied, but he calls himself a scholar, and he's going to refute everything you say, and what he says comes out sounding like a, key, a tea kettle that's screeching, it's already boiling and it's screeching. Mm-hmm. They're angry. Mm-hmm. They're mad. They put you down. And like I said earlier, I don't believe in the resurrection is not an argument. It's a disconfirm it's a it's a uh it's a personal testimony that you don't believe it. Mm-hmm. And my response to you is, Well, I'm sorry, I believe in it. Now what does that do for you? Nothing. You're only saying you believe in it. And they don't even see that. All they did was deny it. Um, I'm not talking about God. And then they go, by the way, Jesus never lived. Okay, right. Give me a break. Because <laughs> even the skeptical scholars ignore those guys. Right. Uh, Bart Ehrman's written a book on it, uh, going off on him. He's not the only one. Okay, so scholars, that's it. I'll I'll use six facts that almost, almost no scholar will deny any of the six facts. And then I'll say the best explanation for these six facts is that Jesus died on the cross, I'll make it real simple. I won't even argue it's a miracle to start with, because that is a philosophical argument, takes other other parameters. But I'll just say this man died, and later his friends saw him. That's enough. He died. You, are you sure he's dead? Oh, yeah, we buried him.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: He's had the blood drained out of him. I mean, he's been dead in the way you bury people. And I'm telling you, a week later, I saw him. Yeah, well, good dreams. Ah, it wasn't good dreams. Did I tell you three of my buddies were there with me? Six of my buddies were there with me. Oh, yeah? Do you have a picture?
0: Right, and so the reason you're not going to bring up the resurrection is because that's a, a theological, a philosophical claim, and you're really just trying to get what can we, what's the bare minimum place where we can find some kind of agreement from a historical standpoint? Is that is that right?
2: Yep. And what what are some of those, the the three to six that you use? And and here and here's the two questions: Did he die? Yep. The, this the skeptic asking. Yep. Was I don't even say was he raised from the dead. I say was he seen later? Was he walking and talking with his buddies later? Um. It looks like it. Good. That's where I'm going with these six facts. Later, I'll talk to you about what Jesus said about himself. Is he the Son of God? Do we have a right to call him the Son of God? Is he just? Is this just baloney? And did God do it? Because by definition, even David Hume, a miracle is an event caused by God or a supernatural agent. So that's what it is by definition. That doesn't mean they happen. So that's a technical question. We get there later. But I only want to know, was this guy dead? Was this guy seen later? And I use their six facts and say, yeah, you're not going to get out of this one. Because I've got a a bunch of a number of unbelievers are friends of mine. Bob Price, uh, John Loftus, they're friends of mine. They'll tell you they're friends. And I would say the same thing about them. And I'd sit down and push with them. I said to one of them, he's a big football fan. I said to one of them, the first time I met him, I said, I wished you lived next door to me. And I have the football package for my family. I wished you came over and sat in my living room every Sunday afternoon and you and I could argue. I said, the first time I met him. And then I said, and let me tell you something. Someone's going to be converted after all this is over, and it's not going to be me. And the guy just started laughing. He thought it was really amusing. Not laughing like laughing at me. He thought that was – and that just hit us off on a friendship. So that's my I, – I take it like a football game or a hockey game. That's the way you play this. Yeah. Only it's with data and it's with lies. And so the,
0: the, the, the historical the, – the minimal facts for us will use these facts that are agreed upon by virtually all critical scholars, things like Jesus died by crucifixion. Um, his closest followers yep. believed to have seen him had an experience that they claimed it was seeing him. The skeptic Paul uh, also yep. claims to have seen Jesus and then began preaching a message. So these are these. This is what you're talking about. That many people are going to be yep. surprised to go. Wait a minute. This is historical fact i mean if we can call anything a historical fact we can call this a historical fact so what that show that i watched on the history channel about did jesus ever even live that real critical scholars would all reject that there are so many people in the church and non believers also that have never heard this and those simple the simple uh, this is goes to that intellectual kind of doubt these these this is these factual statements jesus actually lived Jesus died. This isn't disputed historically. It's not disputed historically that his followers believed to experience the risen Jesus. It's not disputed historically that they believed it so much that they were willing to preach a message with the central point being the resurrection of Jesus Christ for the, and your faith therein, having the forgiveness of your sins. They were willing to die for this message. You've got the skeptics, James and Paul, converting, and this is not disputed historically. When I've used it, so when I came across this years (laughs) ago, of course, because of your work and Mike's, I thought this was brilliant. Wow, this is a really helpful starting place, not just for the believers who have doubts, but in evangelism, the did you know this? What do you think is the best explanation of just these facts? And I, I thought it was brilliant. I've seen personally how impactful it is. Um, because it cuts through a lot of, we've all been in, you know, these kind of apologetic and evangelistic conversations. They just go everywhere. They want to ask questions about this and questions about this. And they want to talk about, in Matthew, about people coming yeah. out of tombs and they just want to go everywhere. We're like, okay. Okay. Not that those questions are irrelevant,
2: yeah.
0: but what about this? Let's, let's start here. What do you make of this? And let's keep coming back to that. Now there's been some, So I I think it's brilliant. I think it's very helpful. And when I came across it, I did not think that what you or Mike or anybody else that ascribes the minimal facts theory, what you were teaching was only use this. Don't ever use any other approach. But recently it seems like there's been some criticism of the minimal facts approach saying that we need to go for a more inclusive, a cumulative uh, facts approach. And uh, there's been some criticism of it. Now, I, I think it's misplaced, but I, I would love to hear from you. Are you insisting that both in scholarship and in personal evangelism only use the minimal effects approach and don't bring anything else in? I wouldn't is even that. Is that dream, your position?
2: I wouldn't even dream of saying that. In fact, my my teach my uh, TA, my research assistant, who has a PhD himself and did both his master's and PhD dissertation on the resurrection. Um he has a, a book he's proposing now with um, a, a baker's dozen of reliability for the New Testament arguments. He gives 13 arguments for reliability, and they're all different. It's a brilliant little, he, he does a uh, PowerPoint on it, and you get through it in an hour. So you can give it to a lay audience, but it's really heavy stuff. They have to listen, but it's really detailed. And that's my position. I mean, you know, we he and I have worked together for eight years, and Minimum facts is one of the 13. So there's 13 ways to go after it. And if somebody goes, mm-hmm. your, your thing is way too narrow. Now, Craig Blomberg's 850-page book on the resurrection, that's the way I go. And I, and I go, well, good. If you can talk to a guy on a bus for 15 minutes and cover mm-hmm. 850 pages, you go for it. <laughs> if you want to do reliability, do it. You want to use archaeology, go for it. Um, there's a lot of things you could use. No, I'm not opposed to using other things one little bit. But I'll tell you what, the minimal Mm -hmm. facts is the simplest, probably, approach-wise. It's the fastest. It cuts through things. And many people who, like the other longer kinds, still acknowledge that the minimal facts are knockout arguments in situations X, Y, Z. In fact, if you guys know the philosopher uh, Angus Manoush, who used to be... Angus Manoj was the president of the uh, Evangelical Philosophical Society for years, and he's he's a PhD philosophy and, and philosopher, and he was reviewing something I'd written, and he said, he said Gary Habermas's minimal facts argument. I love this phrase. He said it removes boulders behind which atheists hide. So if the minimal facts argument mm. uses facts. And disarms the person. Here's a trend that we see coming. Very few, and I keep emphasizing, established scholars with uh, terminal degrees in a relative relevant area. We're not talking about those who get angry and go off on Jesus. Period. That they're not they're not in view here. I'm not saying there's no answers, but there's a lot of answers. There's too many, but I'm not dealing with them um, today. There seems I'm getting ready to publish on this. There, there seems to be um, a shortage, if you're a critic, there seems to be a shortage of, of critics who are willing to take one theory, one alternate theory, and stand on it. They don't do it. In fact, two of the biggest just passed away. Garrett Ludeman, who took the hallucination theory, and John Shelby Spong, who took, well, it's, mm-hmm. it's hard to name his theory, um, but he believes only only Peter had that experience and it was uh transferred to everybody else. Um they both have passed away in the last year. And they're two of the main ones. Notice they're very elderly, because in in elderly times with elderly people, those guys have been around and those theories, they could do it, and people would it'd be hard to respond harder to respond to them with a plethora of data. When you can narrow down the facts and nail them on it. Here's, the, here's what most critics are doing today. Mm-hmm. It's like this. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I, I don't take any one theory. I'm, I'm going to give you a shotgun thing, because if A doesn't work, B will. If B doesn't, J will. And they want to be able to go up and down the list. And I think the reason they want to go up and down is because, as Bart Ehrman even says when he was a Christian, when he was an evangelical, he used to love people to take actualistic theories because he would have them in the corner in no time, and they wouldn't know how to respond. He said, No, I don't I wouldn't do that now because I don't think I was doing mm-hmm. the right thing. But mm-hmm. that's that's what's happening with the minimal facts. It 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 removes these boulders that people were real happy to hide behind and say what I think happened was blank. And now they're just going anything, anything works but resurrection. Well, mm-hmm.
0: it's it's so. a helpful tool because in a very confused time where people have access to all of the ideas of all time, through through their smartphone, right? Uh, living in a very pluralistic society, people have these kind of quilt, if you will, worldviews. They have just, uh, just combined beliefs from all over the place and people are in many ways just very confused about what is real and what they even what what do they even believe. So a tool like the minimal facts approach, I think it's very helpful today because of its simplicity mm-hmm. and it allows you to gain some clarity and find a helpful starting place in a relationship with somebody to really discuss the truth of the gospel.
1: Well I, I also just wanted to jump in real quick and say that uh, if you have not read The Case for the Resurrection, this is the book where you can find the Minimal Facts Argument. Please read it. It will literally change your life if you haven't studied the Resurrection. And if you have questions or doubts, please read The Case for the Resurrection. Uh, and, and Dr. Gary, while we have you just for a couple more minutes, I, I wanted to ask a couple questions from listeners. Uh, a few years ago, there was a panel where you and Jordan Peterson had done something at Liberty University. And I remember you made a funny comment after he had spoken a little bit about the resurrection. You said, we'll get the resurrection straightened out at lunch. Uh, now, do you mind if I ask what that conversation was like?
2: Yeah, I was with Jordan that day for about uh, mm-hmm. three or four hours. Wow. And that, it was no it was nothing like... A normal conversation like, "Well, what about this theory? What about that theory?" He was super, super open, and and the way the relationship started was about a year before that, if I remember. He tweeted, or one, one of those forms of, of um, uh, you know, mass media. He he published, republished a three-page article argument for the resurrection minimal facts that I had done in a book, and he took the argument and put it on his site. And he said something like, this may be the most important question I've ever entertained. Now, I don't think he meant my article. I think he meant the general mm-hmm. question of resurrection. But so the conversation started Nick by him saying, this is where the I, I'm real interested. And then he asked me, would you do a podcast with me on the resurrection? And he asked me, hmm. so We've never done it because days after that happened was when he announced to the world that he'd gotten sick with um uh right what yeah. yeah and and his and then his wife had cancer, very serious cancer and they were put on the shelf for a while now he and I have corresponded since then, but I'm not sure that that podcast will ever happen, but we had a very fruitful conversation but Nick, not like the kind where I was twisting arms or pulling teeth. I was saying things like the minimal fact stuff, and he would just respond like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I've got to do more thinking about this. That that that's that's really good. That's like, that's what I remember about the conversation. It was not, definitely not antagonistic, but it wasn't even, what if, what if, what if, was even that. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, he strikes me as someone who's, of course, I I don't know him personally, just what I see publicly, is somebody who's very intellectually honest that he's almost like a slave to his ideas and must follow them where they lead. And in a sense, that's an admirable quality because for, for many people, right, our emotions and our volition gets in the way and it's more of we're afraid of what's true, we're anxious about what is true, and that distorts our, our view of reality. But uh, just the example that Jordan, I think, can set for, for many people is pursue truth, follow it where it leads you, and submit to what is true. And of course, as Christians, we hold that in Jesus Christ is the ultimate source of truth and we are to submit to him as as Lord. So I don't mean to take more time, Nick. I know we're, we're wrapping it up, and you got some things there. So
1: No, I, I would agree with you 100%. He really, I, I'm indebted to him in a lot of ways, and I'm also indebted to uh, Dr. Habermas here in a lot of ways. It's just thinking is so important, and it's something that we, we have to do more of. We have to think on our own and follow the evidence where it leads, which is why we're doing this series. Um, and, and Dr. Habermas, if we could just do one more question. Uh, what is your interpretation of, of the First Corinthians fifteen twenty nine passage, where Paul says, now if there is no resurrection, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? And if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized for them?
0: Now, is this your question, Nick, or is that from the, an audience? That's my question. Audience. That's oh, my okay, question. Right. But I'm a listener. Right.
1: I listen to these programs after I publish them. <laughs> um, my
2: take on that is, based on the fact that Paul never brings it up elsewhere, never encourages anybody to do this, never says, don't forget now you've got some dead relatives you need to be baptized for. And since he doesn't do that, and since that would be a very important topic uh, if he did believe that, I think what he's doing is he is what today we would call um, refuting a person from their own presuppositions. I think what he's saying is Look, mm-hmm. you guys have issues, and 29, verse 29 follows verses 12 to 19. And in 12 to 19, he's been saying, what is a resurrectionless Christianity? And his answer is, nothing. There is no Christianity. Mm-hmm. Well, what about the crucifixion? Mm-hmm. Sorry, you're still in your sins. The resu- if there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. In fact, verse 19, 10 verses earlier, says, we are of all men most miserable. But the reason he's saying this is because the Corinthians had issues, and if you read the scholars, there's about a half dozen major views as to what they think was going on with the Corinthians. Most of them say they had the Greek view that spirits could live forever, but bodies couldn't live forever. That's one of the options. But Paul's arguing against their view that the dead aren't really raised, and that would at least mean they're not raised bodily. So then when he gets up to verse 29, what I think he's saying is, hey, wait a minute. This is your problem. You don't think people can be raised and so on. So why are you being baptized, or maybe not you, but whoever it was they were talking about, why are they being baptized for the dead if they don't believe in a resurrection? I think he's saying, I think he's saying it's a circular argument. Hmm. You're re- you're refuting yourself. It's self self referentially an error. And and someone said, so that's an easy. Uh, comment, because that's kind of like what you believe. I'm going to say, well, it looks to me it's like what Paul believes, because Paul never brings it up again, never encourages Mm -hmm. it, never. I think he's just kind of saying, you guys are inconsistent.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great answer. Well, Uh, Dr. Gary Habermas, thank you so much again for joining uh, Mike and I here in The Universe Next Door. We'd love to have you back down the road. It has been a pleasure to have you on, and I now know more than I did about an hour ago. So thank you so much for that, and thank you for listening. Please, if you're listening over the radio, make sure you subscribe to The Universe Next Door podcast. You're going to hear extended interviews. You're going to hear more content that you don't hear over the radio. Uh, So thank you for faithfully listening to The Universe Next Door.